Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm producer Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Be sure to visit robertjmorgan.com where you'll find Rob's blog posts, podcast feed, bookstore, free resources, and more. If you've not already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review. Now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Robert J. Morgan podcast, which is devoted to simply teaching the Bible. And we are studying the book of Philippians, and the title of this series of episodes is called Whatever Happens, because the key verse of Philippians is in chapter 1, verse 27, when Paul told these people and us, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. I want to begin today with the actual uh, exegesis of the book. So far, we've been looking at background information, particularly from the book of Acts. But let's begin today with chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, which we call the salutation. And here's the story behind it, just to review what we have looked at previously. This man, his name was Epaphroditus, left on a missions trip. He went with good courage and great excitement. And he was going from Philippi to Rome to take provisions from the church to the Apostle Paul, who was imprisoned there. And the entire church had prayed for him and sent him on his way. But he had become very sick in Rome. He nearly died, and it caused an awfully lot of anxiety for Paul. He, this man didn't have all of the medical support he needed, and at one point, Epaphroditus was just about given up for dead. But he began to recover, and the day came when he was able to leave Rome and make the rigorous trip back home. When he arrived in Philippi, I'm sure that he had to describe his adventure again and again. Everyone was so glad and so thankful to see him. But what we remember from the story has to do with the little sealed-up roll of parchment that Epaphroditus brought home with him, which he undoubtedly handed immediately to the pastor of his church, and as the word spread, every Christian in the city gathered to hear the letter of Philippians being read for the first time. We've been reading it ever since. It has 633 words in the original Greek. Now, just for comparison's sake, I've been manuscripting out my sermons for uh, nearly half a century, and when I write out a sermon and preach it, then my manuscript is about 3,000 or 3,300 or 3,400 words. So a typical sermon that I would preach is double the length of this little book of Philippians. But as far as the books of the Bible go, while it's not so very large, it is ever so rich. And Paul wrote it while chained to a soldier in Rome, and it was carried by the, uh, the, by this man, Epaphroditus, back to Philippi, and it was read beginning with this salutation for the first time, undoubtedly right after he got back into the city, gave a report from Paul, 
and the pastor unscroll this letter and to begin to read. It begins with a very typical uh, salutation or greeting. This letter corresponds to the literary style of its day. We know that in libraries and universities around the world, there are thousands of old letters going back to antiquity, back to biblical times. So we know a lot about how people wrote letters in those days. And in the letters of Paul, the great apostle followed the typical customs and norms for the correspondence of the day, but he gave everything a gospel twist. So even in his introductions and salutations and in his conclusions and greetings, there's a richness of material that simply thrills us when we take time to study it. I think that I could preach an entire year just from the introductions and conclusions of Paul's 13 epistles. Well, here is how he opened this one, Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all of God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's a very brief passage. But there's enough truth and theology in those two verses to fill an ocean. For the sake of simplicity, I want to point out to you, and you may want to circle these in your Bible, I have them circled in mine, that there are three primary grammatical prepositions that link these clauses together and allow us to follow the logic of what Paul has said. Now, a preposition is just a very little thing. It's a small word that comes before a noun or a pronoun that expresses relationships. Prepositions are some of our smallest, simplest words, but they are very important. For example, in a parade, it makes a great deal of difference if you are before the elephant or behind the elephant. Or at a funeral, it makes a big deal of difference if you are above the ground or below the ground. It is a big difference if someone is for you or if they are against you. So prepositions are little words that come before nouns that explain the relationship between the clauses of a sentence. Well, let's read this opening passage again, and I will emphasize the three key prepositions that I want you to see. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are a number of prepositions, but the three that we've got to remember are of, in, and from. So you might go ahead and circle those. Of Christ, in Christ, and from Christ. Paul lists those in the order that were natural for the writing of his letter, but I want to tackle them in a logical order as they would tend to unfold in our lives. And that starts with the phrase, in Christ. This is a letter written to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus. 
Now, there's two phrases there to deal with, and the first one is we are God's holy people, and then we are God's holy people in Christ Jesus. So let's look at the first term, God's holy people. In most translations, this is rendered saints. So if you go to another translation, it might say Paul and Timothy to all of the saints in Christ Jesus. But the New International Version has replaced the word saint with the phrase holy people because the translators were afraid that the English word saint now conveys an inaccurate meaning. And they're right about that. If you went up to a random person on the street or maybe even in the hallway of your church and said, can you name a saint for me? They might say, well, there's St. Francis of Assisi or St. Teresa. Or maybe they would say, well, my grandmother was a saint. She was the saintliest person I've ever known. We think of a saint as someone who is extremely godly. Or if we have a Catholic or an Orthodox background, we think of someone who is canonized by the church. That is, someone who is pronounced by church officialdom to be a saint. But in the New Testament, the word saint is basically a synonym for a Christian. The Greek term is hagios, which is often translated holy or set apart or pure. It was a word that was used among the secular Greeks to describe something that engenders awe. And it also came to describe a temple or a sanctuary that contained beautiful and sacred things which were not accessible to the public. Well, in the Old Testament, the equivalent Hebrew term was used to describe the God of Israel and his name and the things that were connected to him. So we read about holy ground and the holy temple and the holy place and the holy of holies. And God's Old Testament people were called to be a holy people, keeping his laws and reflecting his purity to all of the nations in the earth. In the New Testament, God the Father is described as holy, and so is God the Son. And obviously, God the Holy Spirit, who actually has the word holy in his title. He is also the omnipotent spirit, and the loving spirit, and the omniscient spirit, but he is typically called the Holy Spirit. And then to our surprise, we also discover that the church and all who have been redeemed by Christ are also called saints or God's holy people. Now, I believe that it's very important for us to begin to think of ourselves in those terms. Our self-image and our behavior is influenced by how we think of ourselves. If you think of yourself as worthless or unlovable or inadequate, you'll begin acting that way. But if you say, I am one of God's holy people, I am one of God's saints, and you really recognize that as your identity, that will affect the way that you think and act and talk. We are God's holy people and his saints, and we are his saints in a twofold way. First, as the followers of Christ, we have instantaneous holiness conferred on us. But then secondly, we have progressive holiness developed within us. Now, I want to show you how these two things are taught together to us in one very simple passage in the book of Hebrews. So if you're able to uh, have your Bible open while you're listening to this, then turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Look at Hebrews chapter 10 
and verse 10. It says, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This is something that has already happened the moment that we receive Christ as Savior. We have been made holy. The moment that we receive him into our hearts, we are made righteous in God's sight. Our sins are transferred to Jesus Christ, and his righteousness is transferred to us. And when God looks at you and at me, despite the inward sin that we may be indulging in, he nevertheless sees the holiness of Jesus Christ. I'll give you an illustration of this. There was a man back in the 1800s named Edward Creasy, C-R-E-A-S-Y, Creasy. He was born into a British military family, and he was stationed in Sri Lanka. And then as a young man, he joined the army, and when World War II broke out, or rather World War I, he fought in France and in the Middle East. In May of 1921, Edward Creasy was captured and condemned to be shot by a Polish firing squad. But this is what he said to them. He said, the Union Jack, the flag of the British Empire, though invisible, is wrapped around me. If you fire at me, you will hit the British flag. You do not dare do it. And the firing squad hesitated and then lowered their weapons. Well, in the same way, the invisible righteousness of Jesus Christ is wrapped around us. We are contained within and shielded by his enveloping holiness. The devil may accuse us, our own conscience may accuse us, but we cannot be successfully attacked or condemned. There is no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ. We may not yet be all we should be. But we are wrapped in and vested with the holiness of Christ. Hebrews 10.10 says we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Christ once for all. But now skip down to Hebrews 10.14, just four verses later. It says, for by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Now, verse 10 says, we have already been made holy. And this verse says, we are being made holy. There is an instantaneous action that occurs, and we are pronounced holy. And then there is a progressive process that occurs. And as we grow in Christ, we are being made holy. David Allen, in his commentary on Hebrews, wrote, the author is making good use of the Greek tense system here to contrast the perfect finished work of Christ on the cross and its sanctifying effect on believers when he talks about in verse 10 and verse 14 the finished work and the ongoing work of progressive sanctification. But both progressively and instantaneously, we are God's holy people, already but not yet, as the theologians would say. And that brings us back to our key preposition here. We are God's holy people in Christ. Now, that was Paul's trademark phrase. We are in Christ. You can see it all the way through the book of Philippians. You can especially see it if you read the book of Ephesians. It is the major theme of Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3. The word in 
is a preposition that means to be positioned or placed within a certain environment. For example, think of the air, the atmosphere. We are surrounded by air, and the air is also within us. We breathe it in. But if you end up in a vacuum chamber, or maybe in a bank vault that's locked, and maybe a submarine that is sunk, or somewhere where the air gives out, you are no longer in the air, the air is no longer in you, and you die. Well, when we receive Jesus Christ as Savior, we are enveloped by Christ. We are united in a relationship with Him. We are abiding in Him. He is our environment, and when we are in Him, we are in our element. So this is a basic synonym or a synonymous phrase for being a Christian. We are God's holy people in Christ. Now, the second preposition is of Christ. When we are saints in Christ, it's very natural for us to be increasingly the servants of Christ. Read verse 1 again. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all of God's holy people in Christ Jesus, we are servants of Christ because we are in Christ, because we are in Christ Jesus as saints, we are servants of Christ in daily action. The Greek word here for servant is doulos, which means literally a slave. In all of his writings, Paul used this basic term approximately, well, actually, exactly 59 times, but it has a double connotation. When we refer to ourselves as servants or slaves to Christ, that phrase, first of all, connotes humility. A servant or a slave is a person of humble station. Now, in the Roman Empire, slavery was rather different from what we have read about in the American antebellum South. Um, certainly, there were slaves that were physically abused in Roman times, but a vast portion of the population of the Roman Empire was made up of professional men and women who were lawyers or financial experts or clothiers or chefs or tutors or administrators or educators who happened to be employed by someone who owned them. They lived fairly normal lives, except they were owned by someone. The Apostle Paul attacked the institution of slavery in a very subtle and powerful book called Philemon, We'll look at that book one day. And he encouraged slaves, whenever possible, to seek their freedom. And he demanded that masters cease from abusing their slaves. His letters, along with the rest of Scripture, has provided the moral foundation for the abolition of slavery in the British Empire and in America, and it is Christians today who are fighting human trafficking and slavery. And yet, in another sense here, Paul said that we are slaves of Jesus Christ. But then look at what he said across the page in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. Just across the page from Philippians 1, 1 and 2, you have Philippians 2, 5. And he says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing 
by taking the very nature of a doulos, a servant, a slave. Now, Jesus, during his lifetime, was never owned by anybody. He was not a slave as slaves were known in the Roman Empire. And yet he took on the nature of a doulos, a servant, and a slave. And this refers to the humility with which he served under the direction of God the Father. And it refers to the humility with which we should serve the Lord. One of the greatest devotional preachers and writers of the last 200 years was Andrew Murray, who wrote more than 200 books during his 60 years of ministry in, North Af- uh, in, in Southern Africa, South Africa. Many of his books were based on his sermons, but for two years, he literally lost his voice. Andrew Murray, he suffered from, well, we don't know what it was today because medical uh, technology wasn't as developed, but it was a mysterious throat condition that rendered him virtually speechless. And he was only in his early 50s at the time, and so he obviously had to take a sabbatical from the pulpit. And during this time, he studied the subject of humility. And what he learned during that time, he later wrote and published and preached about them, and his book on humility is widely considered the best book ever written in English on that subject. And I want to give you one major quote from it. Andrew Murray said, There is nothing so divine and heavenly as being the servant and the helper of all. The faithful servant who recognizes his position finds a real pleasure and supplying the wants of the master or his guests. When we see that humility is something infinitely deeper than contrition, and we accept it as our participation in the life of Christ, we shall begin to learn that it is our true nobility, and that to prove it in being servants of all is the highest fulfillment of our destiny as people created in the image of God. Now, that quotation really bears out the paradox of being a slave or a servant. It denotes humility, but at the same time, it denotes honor. It's an incredible thing. We have a humble position as servants, but at the same time, we have a very high position as servants. Biblical commentators have discussed this a great deal. On the one hand, the word servant or doulos is a word that connotes our humble position as slaves, but at the same time, the Bible uses it as an honorific title. The commentators use that phrase, honorific title, uh, because it simply means that it confers a place of honor. When people in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, were called servants of God, that was a very lofty phrase. For example, in Psalm 105, verse 26, it says that God sent Moses his servant and Aaron whom he had chosen. Joshua 24 and verse 29 says, After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. Ezekiel 34, 23 says, I will establish one shepherd over my people, and he shall feed them my servant David. And in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 6, Daniel said in his prayer to the Lord, 
neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and to our princes, to our fathers, and to the people of the land. To be called a servant of the Lord was a very high and exalted honor. It's one of the greatest paradoxes and deepest mysteries of the Christian experience. To be the Lord's slave is simultaneously the humblest thing we can do and the highest thing we can do. And that's why Andrew Murray, if I can give you this quote again, says there is nothing so divine and heavenly as being the servant and the helper of all. The faithful servant who recognizes his position finds real pleasure in supplying the wants of the master and his guests when we see that humility is something infinitely deeper than contrition and accept it as our participation in the life of Jesus, we shall begin to learn that it is our true nobility and that to prove it in being servants of all is the highest fulfillment of our destiny as people created in the image of God. So we are saints in Christ Jesus and we are servants of Christ Jesus. All of that is in verse 1. And now in the second verse we learn that we are supplied from Christ Jesus with everything we need for our sainthood and for our servanthood. Look at verse 2. Grace and peace be to you from God our Father, he adds that phrase, and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now at this point, I'm using the New International Version, and it sort of lets us down. It says, grace and peace to you. But the actual literal order in the Greek is grace to you and peace from God the Father of us and the Lord Jesus Christ. So first, we are supplied with an abundance of grace. Now, what is grace? It is every single blessing that God has ever invented. Grace is every single blessing that God has ever conceived of and devised every single one. And because he is infinite, his gifts and his blessings are infinite, and we have all sufficient grace. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Every one of them. 2 Corinthians 9, 8. God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things and at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Psalm 85, verse 11 says, Faithfulness springs forth from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord will indeed give what is good. James 1 says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. And in the book of Acts, it says that the Lord gives to us showers of blessings, millions of drops. So grace is every single blessing that God has ever invented. So we are supplied for all of the needs of life by all of the blessings that come to us from Jesus and his Father. Now, because we have every single blessing God has ever devised or invented, we are flooded with peace, blessings, grace to you, 
from God and peace from our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the kind of language that uh, Paul often uses. We have peace with God, and we have the peace of God because we have peace with God. And we'll go into this uh, later in Philippians chapter 4 because the Apostle Paul devotes an incredible paragraph about it. But because you are supplied with every blessing you need, you have a peace, and the devil cannot rob us of our blessings, and therefore he cannot permanently disrupt our peace. We have inner peace. We have the peace of God within us, although the devil certainly tries. In the book Pilgrim's Progress, I've just recently finished rereading that incredible book, and there are modern versions of it if you can't uh, deal with the words from the 1600s. But in this book, we have an incredible scene that describes this. The pilgrim, whose name is Christian, has started out on his journey through life towards the celestial city, and he stops by the interpreter's house, which was a place where he learned many important things to help him on his journey. It really is a picture of what the church should be, the interpreter's house, equipping us for the daily Christian walk. Well, the interpreter, this, this Holy Spirit figure, took Christian from room to room, showing him different things and telling him different lessons. In one room, there was a fireplace blazing with a roaring fire, and the devil was there throwing one bucket of cold water after another onto the fire, trying to quench the flames. And Christian looked at the scene for a while, and with amazement he said to the interpreter, "'How does the fire keep burning?' The interpreter beckoned him through the door to the back side of the fireplace where there was a man behind the wall pouring a constant stream of very flammable oil onto the flame and making it unquenchable. Well, that is a wonderful picture. We have a constant supply of grace and peace that floods into our hearts by the oil of the Holy Spirit sent from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why we can evermore be saying, He restores my soul. I know this from experience. None of us have very easy lives, and my own life hasn't always been as easy as I thought it would be. In fact, there have been times, I'm sure this is true for you too, when I was so crushed, I didn't think that I could ever be reassembled. I was like Humpty Dumpty that fell off the wall. But thus far, I can tell you, I have never had an experience, however horrendous or harrowing, in which I did not find what I needed for the moment in the words of Scripture, in the stanzas of the great hymns, in the closet of prayer, and from the provision and in the presence of the Heavenly Father. Even recently, when I was very low, as I sat at my desk with an open Bible and a broken heart, I could almost physically feel the moment the Lord poured oil onto the fire, and He strengthened my soul. Annie J. Flint wrote about this. She was a disabled hymnist, and she knew all about this from firsthand experience, and she wrote these wonderful words. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow deeper. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. 
when we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power no boundary known unto man. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Well, remember these prepositions. We are saints in Christ Jesus. So we are servants of Christ Jesus, and we are supplied from Christ Jesus with all of the grace and peace that we can ever imagine. And just when we think we're about to exhaust it, he gives and gives and gives again. Well, thank you for digging into the riches of God's Word with me, especially this first um, paragraph, the little salutation of the book of Philippians. Next week, I want to do something very unusual, a little bit different for a podcast, but we will be in Philippians, so I hope that you will stay tuned and that you will share this podcast with other people. Remember to check out all of my resources at our website, robertjmorgan.com, and my books, including my newest book, The 50 Final Events in World History, wherever books was sold. This episode was produced by Joshua Rowe and the marketing company of Clearly Media. Audio editing by Jared Brummett. Print editing and blog posting by Sherry Anderson, Luke Tyler, and Carson Outlaw. Music is by Jordan Davis and Elijah Rowe. And look for the transcript of this podcast soon on the blog page of my website, robertjmorgan.com. Thank you for listening, and may God be with you until we meet again.